Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Doctors In Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nadia Saba, president and founder of Dr. Greenhouse. Today's interview is part of our special series, What Plants Crave from STEM, where I'm interviewing equipment providers, engineers, and designers about the unique technological needs for growing crops indoors and in greenhouses. My guest today is Craig Berg, Vice President of Engineering at Desert Air, an HVAC company that until recently was best known for their specialty HVAC equipment serving indoor pool environments. Today, they are well known in the indoor agriculture space as one of the few HVAC equipment providers who have geared their system operations, controls, and inner gears to better serve indoor plant environments. As Vice President of Engineering, Craig is in charge of product research and development, product testing, and custom engineering projects. I met Craig about four or five years ago after I first started Dr. Greenhouse, when Desert Air invited me up to their factory in Wisconsin to give a guest lecture to their technical sales team about the unique needs of indoor farms. They were way ahead of their time. Since then, we've worked together on the new standard, HVAC for Indoor Plant Environments Without Sunlight, a standard that was co-developed by ASABE and ASHRAE. And we serve on several technical committees together at ASHRAE. In case you hadn't guessed, one of his HVAC specialties lies in dehumidification. And I'm pretty sure that's going to be the main focus of our discussion today. Craig, it's great to have you on the What Plants Crave podcast. I'm really excited to geek out with you about HVAC and take a deep dive into humidity control and why it's such a big challenge for indoor plant environments. Yeah, thank you, Nadia. It's it's great to be here. And uh, yes, I'll say, uh, I'm sure we're going to geek out today a little bit. You know, uh, you'll have to stop me. Uh, I often slip into thermodynamics, psychometrics, you know, refrigeration system cycles and, and details. Uh, it's it's really what I deal with every day and I'm well-versed. And I, I do also feel I, I know these applications very well, but uh, I have a tendency to think about how the HVAC systems react to the loads and the environment and so on and so forth. So you'll uh, be my backstop. And when I get into uh, compressor superheat or uh, liquid subcooling, you'll pull me back, I'm sure. I don't know if I will, because I want to know all about that as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, Craig, tell me, how did you first get interested in HVAC and, and the world of dehumidification? It's uh, a great question. Uh, I'm going to say uh, no kid grows up dreaming of becoming an HVAC system designer. If your kid does, maybe you should go get them checked a little bit, perhaps. <laughs> but that said, <laughs> um, no, it's, uh, you know, when I was going to school, like like uh, many kids, you know, I wanted to have that uh, dream job of uh, something like, you know, an engine powertrain developer for one of, I guess I'll age myself here, right? One of the big three, right? One of the automotive people. And, uh, you know, this this idea about uh, you know, the engines and, and the cycles that go with engines were was really interesting. But, uh, you know, I realized, uh, you know, kind of later in school and, and uh, leaving school that uh, those jobs weren't as readily available as perhaps I thought. So I, uh, being in the Milwaukee area, we have this uh, huge base of contract manufacturing. We were kind of the machine shop to the world. They were We were called at one point. So we had a lot of, you know, Alice Chalmers and, and all of these uh, big heavy industry, as well as all of the uh, small shops that came up. And so when I, I left school, I started doing a lot of contract manufacturing work and designing. And it meant wearing a lot of hats, uh, whether that was, you know, doing some sheet metal work or, or machining, doing the cam for it, uh, every, everything from the details, plastics and plastic design. But I was missing something. I was missing a little bit of that experience on the, uh, the OEM, where we were designing and building a product itself. And uh, for me, when I had an opportunity to, to talk a little bit with uh, Desert Air, this was some 24 years ago now, I came to realize uh, this is a possibility. Now, I, I wasn't so excited because I, I assumed, I suppose, that this was going to be air conditioning. And when we talk about air conditioning, you know, uh, generally we think about it, it's got four minimum parts. Uh, and, and those four minimum parts are usually, a lot of times that is, all that we see in some of the systems, right? So we've got a compressor that's going to be able to compress gas, and then we're going to have a condenser, we're going to have an expansion device, and we're going to have an evaporator. 
And, and th that's a very basic refrigeration system. And when I went to Desert Air, uh, I realized that's not what we were doing, right? This is something completely different. We've got many more valves to control, many more different aspects of things we'll get into in a little bit. But the idea was, to me, it, it just is kind of interesting to be uh, kind of in this niche portion of mechanical engineering and knowing something that not a lot of other people know. So even though, you know, it's, it's maybe not as glamorous at times from the outside, you know, knowing that kind of unique uh, system is really, that was what interests me the most. And that, that at Desert Air, we do some of the most interesting uh, refrigeration and HVAC systems you'll see. So that's what got me interested. I mean, you know, when I think about that visit that I made to, to the Desert Air factory uh, several years ago, for me, I think that was one of my first introductions to the, the complexity of not the refrigeration cycle, but the refrigeration circuitry. And I remember, I, I think it was you who had this diagram and showing, you know, like all the valves and all the circuits and, and where hot gas was going and refrigerant was going and the changes that you guys were making. And I was like, oh my God, like that was so over my head and over those four or five years, wow, I have learned so much about refrigeration uh, in this world um, out of necessity, right? Just to understand what's going on. And because it is so special, this application and what you guys are trying to do with, with this equipment, you're really doing a lot of new things or even if you're not doing new things, it's kind of a souped up engine, so to speak, to really maximize that dehumidification and, and reheat. Uh, so anyway, I have a big appreciation for what you guys are doing. Uh, you know, I mean, speaking of that, you guys were one of the first players, right, who, who took indoor agriculture and, and maybe it was indoor cannabis production seriously, right? I mean, at a, you guys came in at a time when growers were struggling with residential and, and maybe they were lucky enough to, to be dealing with commercial rooftop units and split systems and, you know, off the shelf types of, of, of HVAC systems um, because, you know, engineers and contractors and manufacturers and growers and everyone didn't quite know what they were getting into and how challenging this was going to be. You know, I've always been curious, why was Desert Air so interested? Why did you actually take a vested interest in controlled environment agriculture? Yeah, well, like typical, uh, some of our industry partners, our representatives, some of the engineers that we know in the field, and say, for us, it was about 2013, 2014, they started asking us about this and, and saying, did you know that there's this, uh, this application out there and it's going to become more popular? And we started to pay attention and look at it. And I think we were were very much uh, interested in hearing what they had to say and doing some investigation where others said, well, that's, you know, that's not our thing. You know, the big guys in the, in the industry, the, the large manufacturers of air conditioning equipment said, well, that's just a niche and, and we can help support that in some way, but, you know, we're not necessarily going to chase a, a small area, but, you know, we deliver niche products in, in the world of dedicated outdoor air systems and pool room equipment and so on and so forth. And when we realized that some of these loads were definitely a dehumidification load, we knew we had the psychometric understanding as well as some of the base equipment to, to kind of be uniquely positioned to address this one. And uh, we, we went forward to do some investigation and, uh, you know, real frankly, uh, when, when we started to do it, we deep dove in with those industry partners. Uh, we started to work on, actually, our first was not a cannabis facility, but it was an indoor lettuce growing facility, basil, microgreens, and so on and so forth. And we learned a lot with that. And we started to expand that out into, you know, the, the world of cannabis and other crops as well. And what we learned real quickly is that, you know, it was a unique ap application. It was definitely different. We'll, we'll get into it in a bit, I'm sure. But uh, in, in any case, we said, you know, we know psychometrics, we know dehumidification, and that's really what this industry needs. I mean, how did you figure out that there was a big dehumidification load? I, I mean, I really want to go back to, because <laughs> still engineers and manufacturers haven't figured this out. How did you guys figure that out so early? 
Yeah, that's a great question. For me, it was uh, really deep diving, investigating, you know, what the loads were. So when I gave my first presentation at one cannabis industry event very early in 2015, I will admit that we were still, we had done the research. We had deep dove with those industry partners and some growers. Uh, we were, we had designed equipment certainly, and we were starting to produce it, but we didn't have a lot in the field when I gave that first presentation. And our methodology about sizing and, and so on has changed a little bit since then. And, and certainly we've developed new tools within the, the units themselves to address it. But back then it was very much let's go investigate what these loads are, what we believe they are. And so I was using some tools, uh, even going so far as using some of the uh, ACA uh, load calculations and using some of the reference that they have for plants in there, which wow. is very limited, <laughs> you could imagine, right? Yeah. Not a lot there. And just, you know, looking at some of these real basic things that I, I knew about biology, which is nowhere near what you know, Nadia, and even you knew back then, certainly. Uh, but, you know, figuring out that, okay, here's the balance between what the air conditioning load is and the uh, dehumidification load, what we call the sensible heat ratio, kind of in, in our terms, mm -hmm. and realizing that it was a dehumidification load. So, yeah, we, we went out there and we really did the research and we were fairly confident enough to go to some of that uh, those industry presentations and, and kind of uh, teach some people about what it was fairly early yeah. on. I mean, I always appreciated uh, the questions you guys asked. You asked the right questions. You wanted to ask the questions, right? You, you guys weren't coming in with a lot of ego um, and a lot of confidence, um, un, un, inexperienced confidence, maybe. Um, you know, you, you asked questions. You were trying to understand what was going on. And, you know, of course, you guys reached out to me, which I always have thought was a smart move <laughs> on your part. Um, to ask those questions. And, and so thank you for that and, and recognizing that you guys didn't know everything, but wanted to, right. Wanted to understand how to serve this market better. So, so speaking of that, I mean, what does make indoor plant environments so different from say the other applications you guys were coming from like an indoor pool room? Yeah, well, it's kind of funny. At one point, someone came to me and, and uh, we were talking about the application and they said, well, uh, you know, these indoor plant environments are like a data center and a pool room had a baby. And they were trying yeah. to say, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> we had all of this sensible load, like a data center where, you know, it's the computers and, and microprocessors that are giving us all this heat. And then we also have this uh, pool application where all the, you know, the pool is constantly has this evaporation and it's becoming a dehumidification load. And I chuckled and, you know, I said, you're right. And then I thought about it a little bit and I said, no, that's not right. That's wrong because what's unique about the plant environment is things are changing. The plants are growing. Uh, yeah. You know, we're doing a, a photo period and we're doing a dark period. The lights are on or the lights are off, right? And so when that does the plant, you know, we do that, the plants respond. They're, they've got a different load at different times. And then we talk about the growing cycle. And if we're, say, in a cannabis flower room, we're talking about, you know, they're coming in and they don't have as much uh, dehumidification load. They're, they're not, uh, uh, you know, that latent load doesn't exist there. But, uh, you know, the sensible is still there. We still have our lights on. So that's an air conditioning load more, more than anything else. And during the end of the cycle, now these plants are very large. Leaf area index is up tremendously. And we've got this huge latent load or dehumidification load in the, in the facility. So all these things changing, that was really the key factor. And if we kind of go back, what interested me is I had been doing pools and I had been doing ice rinks and I had been doing, uh, you know, some of these water treatment plants and so on and so forth. And we really, as an industry, we had a pretty good handle on all of this. But we didn't really understand, you know, kind of coming from that small grow in, in a residential or you said some real small, uh, you know, facilities and moving it into these larger facilities, how this, this all impacted, you know, the, the plants and the lights and so on impacted the loads and, and how to address them. So, you know, that was that's really the key factor there. That's it's really quite different. And it, it's hard, you know, because 
it uh, it's swinging it from here to there. That the lights on to lights off is a tremendously quick uh, change in the loads as we go. Uh, so. Tell us about the the type of equipment that Desert Air provides and how it compares to maybe the other type of air conditioning and dehumidification technology that's available to to growers. I, I tend to think of it in sort of sort of the three broad categories, right? We have sort of a decoupled air conditioning and maybe standalone dehumidifiers. We might have packaged DX and then we have, you know, a central plant with chillers and boilers serving air handling units and the centralized system. Um, can you kind of compare those differences and tell us about what what you guys um, manufacture and develop? Yeah, that's that's a good point. No, I think about it in those categories as well. Uh, there's some other emerging technologies that are out there, but for right now, you know, really we have either the standalone dehumidification units coupled with an air conditioner, or we have integrated type of systems in one form or fashion. With those standalone dehumidifiers, uh, essentially what we're doing is we're using that uh, for only dehumidification purposes. So, you know, whether it's a small portable unit that's sitting on the floor or some of the larger ones that are ceiling hung and so on, these standalone uh, dehumidification units, what they're going to do is cool the air down to its dew point. And then what then happens is the moisture uh, from the air condenses on the surface of the evaporator, right? We call it the evaporator because inside of those tubes, uh, it's evaporating the refrigerant and making the coil surface cold. So as it does that, it's going to you know, wring out the moisture and now it's cold and fairly dry as it comes off of that coil. And then with a standalone dehumidifier, there's a, what's called a reheat coil in there. And that's where we took the energy out, the energy from that we, we took out as we cooled the air down to the dew point, um, and we're going to put it back into the system. Uh, there's three components of that, really, without getting too technic technical again. Uh, the three components really are the, the amount that we sensibly cooled the air down, the, the dry bulb temperature, as it's called. We cooled the air down to that, that temperature. Then as we wrung that moisture out, that's additional energy. It's a lot of additional energy, in fact. Um, if we think about it this way, if we want to go boil a, a pound of water on a stove, um, for each uh, degree that we increase the temperature of that uh, pound of water, that's one BTU. And as we get that warmer and warmer, we're going to approach 212 degrees Fahrenheit. And then we're going to start to need to boil the water if we want to get it any warmer from that point. And that's a tremendous amount of energy. So for every degree, we, we increase that up to 212. It was that one BTU. But when we want to increase that pound of water, that extra BTU from 211 to 212, now it's going to be 970 BTUs for that pound of water. And so, you know, that's, it's a tremendous amount of energy to do that a kind of lot of change. energy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we talk about why it's so energy intensive to do dehumidification. That's the phase change is the big energy that we need to do. So in the world of, we're, we're essentially reversing that process in the world of dehumidification. So that's a tremendous amount of energy input. And uh, actually it's even just a little bit more to do it at our normal temperature of about 70 degrees. It's not 970 and we're reversing the process. It's about uh, 1,050 BTUs at that condition, roughly. Um, so that amount of energy is in the system now too, we're gonna to reject it. Plus it takes energy to move energy around. So we've got the compressor energy, the energy that we put into the system to compress this gas and to move the energy around the system. In a standalone dehumidifier, all that energy goes back into that reheat coil and it's applied to the space as a warm dry temperature. It can be very warm in fact, it can be, uh, 90 degrees, 95 degrees, even getting up to 100 degrees, depending on the incoming temperature and, and the load and so on and so forth. So that technology and that standalone dehumidification is, you know, it's interesting. Now we've got this very warm temperature coming out. And in a lot of cases, most cases, in fact, in an in indoor plant environment, 
we need to get rid of that energy out of the space. It's it, We brought it, we cooled the energy, we put all that energy, we cooled the, the air, we put all that energy back in. Now it's very warm. In most cases, we need to get that out. And how we usually do that is with an air conditioner, right? So we typical air conditioner is going to have one coil that essentially serves the airflow through the space. That's going to be that same type of evaporator coil. And then we're going to have another coil that's outside, the condenser coil in this case. It's not a reheat coil. It's going to reject the energy outside. So it's a remote condenser. And so it uh, essentially rejects. So we got to move the energy essentially twice when we have the standalone. Now, you know, it, how much we have to do that depends on whether, you know, what the loads are, what the sensible heat ratio is at the space and how much we need some of that heat and how much we don't want some of that heat going back to the space. So we need to move it twice. How much we need to move is kind of variable, but that's been our kind of traditional way when it was a very small grow room, we put in air conditioners and we put in dehumidifiers and we needed to make sure that our air conditioners were sized enough to remove the heat from the lights, some of the other motors within the space, and then also move the heat out that we introduced with the dehumidifiers. Desert air doesn't necessarily go down that path. We're really looking for the most energy efficiency, efficient methods uh, to, to do this. And so you can imagine not moving this energy twice is really a key factor. So what we do is we look at integrated systems at Desert Air. Integrated systems mean we can selectively either put that energy back in the air. So let's say it's uh, uh, in the uh, dark period. We can increase the temperature of the air with some of this hot gas that uh, is in this reheat coil, but we can reject a portion of it outside. And so we split the energy and put it where it's needed. And there's a whole bunch of sophistication that goes along with that, where you know you look at what how much load is in the space, how much uh, how much cooling coil temperature, how low of cooling coil temperature we need, and how much we need to reheat that back up. That integrated system really puts the minimal amount of energy into it and rejects it in the right space so we don't have to remove it again. That's the type of systems. And within that, there's a couple systems you know, we can look at, and that's uh, the DX direct DX coils, as we described here. But we can also move around some of the energy with water, too, which has some other advantages on I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit, but that's the type of systems that we do at, at Desert Air is we're always looking at the integrated systems, integrated HVAC for the indoor plant environment. So a couple of the advantages that I heard with an integrated sort of package system is one, we don't have to move and transfer heat uh, around as much or as far uh, for that matter. And with standalone dehumidifiers, you that that heat is is rejected all that heat you know the heat to to cool the air to dehumidify the air and then move uh to transfer the the refrigerant around and that energy around you you get these hot spots potentially right in you get these hot spots in the grow room and with a package system right like what what comes out of the the unit what gets discharged from the unit is you know, what is going to enter the room. You're not going to have these sort of spots where it's warmer and drier because that's where you have these standalones uh, located. You know, one of the very first um, cannabis facilities that I visited many years ago, I remember them saying, oh, you know, like we can't figure out why it's so warm in this corner of the room. Right. And so we like walk over there and I'm like, well, there's like a vent up there in the ceiling. Right. And so we're like, oh, is that, you know, which direction is it going? And we realize, right, like hot air is coming out. And so then we walk outside the room, look up on the top of the ceiling because, you know, of course, it's in like a warehouse. You can see everything. And there's a dehumidifier just sitting right on top and just, you know, pushing warm air down into into the room over that corner of the plants. And, you know, you can, you can experience firsthand just by, by standing next to it. You know, when it comes to, to package DX systems, I mean, one of, it seems like one of the other potential advantages um, over, over maybe the, the decoupled system is the opportunity to recover that heat. So you are talking about moving energy around and you've sort of shortened right? The distance at which you have to, to reject the heat out of the building. 
Um, but you also have the opportunity, right, to recover that heat directly as potentially an energy savings opportunity, I imagine. Yeah, and it depends on how you define package too. In, in a world of like an air-cooled packaged, uh, you can certainly do that, right? So there's a condenser that's reheat condenser inside the equipment and a package condenser coil that's attached. You can also do that with a remote condenser. There can be two condensers and you might put the uh, you know AC equipment or the integrated dehumidifier and HVAC inside and have the remote condenser uh, you can still do that. There's no issue with it. There's advantage to packaged. Uh, when we get into questions about reliability, for example, isn't it nice to go to the manufacturer and say, I would like a package from you. I would like to set that on the rooftop and I don't want to do a lot of the uh, piping going from here to there and deal with the big questions about uh, oil management and refrigerant management. I know the growers, you know, this is probably a little transparent to them, but, you know, to run a pipe uh, a couple hundred yards, uh, it, it can be very difficult. That that uh, line has oil in it and it has refrigerant in it. A pressure drop is important. Velocity is important. So these systems that essentially become field built uh, can have, you know, there, there can be a downside to doing it. There can be an upside as well, but there can be a downside to doing that. So when you talk about an air-cooled or water-cooled package system, you know, a lot of people prefer that the manufacturer has done all of this uh, quality checks, the R&D associated with it, they're not building up their own system in the field. And I, it's a very, for very good reason. Yeah. I mean, and, and also just there, there's fewer pieces of equipment to manage and to maintain if you have it more packaged, all those components more packaged together or coming from at least the same provider and manufacturer. Can you explain a little bit, because I feel like this term gets thrown around a lot. And some people understand it, other people don't. You know, we we tend to try to explain what this term means and how it relates to sort of temperature control. And the term I'm talking about is hot gas reheat. What is hot gas reheat? So that hot gas reheat is that uh, using uh, that hot gas that was absorbed from the system, right? We talked about this great amount of energy that was absorbed during the dehumidification process and the amount that goes in from the, the compressor and, and how we need to, to have that additional energy to move the energy and that amount that we brought the, the temperature of the air down with. If we use hot gas reheat, what we're doing is we've absorbed this energy this compressor in the system essentially takes this cool gas that came out of that cooling coil and it compresses it. And when we do that, it increases the temperature, right? So it's that, uh, that law, right? The ideal gas laws. When we compress this gas, now it's hot. And what we can do with that gas is use it for reheating the air so that when the temperature is, is lower off of this evaporator coil, now we can flow that through a reheat coil. And if it's a hot gas reheat coil, we're using that compressor energy. So, you know, if you've ever done it before, there may be some, some growers out there, some contractors out there who's used an air conditioning piece of equipment and then had a reheat coil that might've been electric or steam or water. You know, that's a new source of energy. And that's gonna be very expensive in these processes where it's dehumidification. So if we can use this hot gas reheat, that is a beautiful thing, right? And uh, we can reheat. Now, again, like that standalone dehumidifier, what we don't wanna do is use all of the hot gas reheat all of the time. That's where the integrated HVAC system can selectively say, I'm gonna use some of that energy and reheat it to just the right amount that the environment needs. So it, everything's in balance. That's the goal of that integrated HVAC equipment. One thing I did want to mention is uh, yeah, sure. a lot of times that uh, it gets confused and someone will say, well, I have hot gas bypass. And hot gas bypass in refrigeration is a completely different thing. Uh, okay. Well, what is hot gas bypass? Because <laughs> I also hear that terminology. How is it different? Is there anything that's the same? Um, other than it's using hot gas. So Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Fair enough. <laughs> 
So a uh, hot gas bypass, essentially, instead of uh, taking the hot gas off the compressor and flowing it through the reheat, this can work in conjunction with hot gas reheat as well. Hot gas bypass will take some of that gas and put it into the evaporator more directly, just downstream of the expansion device. What that does is you can imagine we expanded this, this refrigerant to make it cool in the system. That's what made the uh, evaporator cold. Now, if we push some hot gas into the evaporator, it makes it warm. Well, you're asking, why would I want to do that? Well, two reasons, potentially. Uh, number one, if we're getting down to the point where we're going to freeze the water on the coil, let's say we've got a, a compressor that's too large for the airflow and, and everything else that we got going on in the system, we can push a little hot gas in there and reduce the capacity of the evaporator coil so that it's a little bit warmer and now we don't freeze on it. So it can be a freeze protection type of device. It can be a capacity control device where, okay, we don't wanna do quite as much uh, capacity. Uh, so we're going to have that a little bit warmer, right? It's not the most efficient methodology, but in conjunction with things like stage compressors or variable speed, or you've heard the terminology of, of digital compressor, uh, with one of those other technologies, it can be an efficient way to really control the temperature over the evaporator. So hot gas bypass is different. It's taking it from what we call the high side of the system, the high pressure, hot side of the system, and going to bypass it into the low side of the system to maintain the temperature. And so we don't freeze the water on that coil or we can keep it at a different temperature. So I, I've heard them intermixed and confused in the past. And so hot gas reheat is about reheating the air. Hot gas bypass is about capacity control. Interesting. So I wanna make sure that I'm clear because maybe I've been thinking about it incorrectly. So hot gas reheat is taking hot gas from the compressor. It's not taking the hot gas from the evaporator. Part of me always thought like, right, like the evaporator is absorbing this energy and mm. then we're, and then we're diverting it rather than, right, like through the rest of the circuit, we divert some of that, that expanded, right, that refrigerant, that hot refrigerant to the hot gas reheat coil. But it's not coming from the evaporator coil. It's coming directly from the compressor. That's right. In fact, what comes out of the evaporator coil is actually, it's warmer than what it entered, but it's still relatively cool. Uh, what we did inside of that evaporator, we did phase change outside of the evaporator, right? We condensed moisture uh, on that coil. Inside, we're doing the same thing in reverse. We're bringing in liquid and most of the energy is not coming from the the temperature change of that refrigerant. It's coming from the evaporation of the refrigerant, the phase change of the refrigerant. So what goes into the evaporator is essentially a mixture of liquid and a small amount of vapor because it's expanded through the expansion device. And what comes out, we hope, is 100% vapor uh, and it's at a still relatively cool temperature. So it might be still 45, uh, 55, 60 degrees coming out of the evaporator. It's uh, not good for reheating the air. So we're going to compress it, increase its energy, and then provide that to that reheat coil. Got it. Got it. I, I, I need a... Um a vapor compression cycle diagram in front of you while we have this conversation. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure your, your listeners would appreciate a pH uh, you know, chart right in front of us here, but uh, no, that's, that's, uh, that's exactly what we need. And, and hopefully yeah. we're not losing anyone here because, you know, this, this can be complex and it's important yeah. to at, at some level understand these, these uh, items, but um, yeah, it's, it can take a, a lifetime of, of learning to to understand what's going on, but it's important, you know, if we talk about uh, those who are going to service the equipment and their understanding of, of this type of thing, this is really important. The complexity of these machines, uh, you know, are not there just for fun. <laughs> they right. are fun, but they're not just <laughs> for fun, right? The sophistication, the complexity comes from the need to provide the most energy efficiency for these particular applications. And then that's why it gets a little bit uh, uh, confusing at times, I guess I'll say. Yeah, I mean, you know, farmers in general tend to wear many hats, right? And And when I, you know, one of the things I first fell in love with 
farming when I worked on that mushroom farm in, in Idaho 25 years ago now was just, you know, I mean, the farmer was, he was growing the mushrooms. He was, you know, taking care of the equipment. He was doing the accounting. He was selling product. You know, I mean, he was like so many different things. I mean, you know, whatever it was. Um, and it just amazed me how many hats. And now when I think about growers, maybe they don't need to know how to fix their tractor when it breaks down in the field, but they need to know now how to, how to fix their HVAC system or who to call to help them fix their HVAC system. Right. So important. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, these machines are running 24, seven, 365. And that's, yeah. that's not a euphemism. That's not an exaggeration, right? That's they absolutely are in some form or fashion running that long. And one of the things that we can do to make sure our units stay online is have someone on staff, you know, if mm. facilities large enough, have a very good maintenance crew that that has a refrigeration background or certainly know you absolutely have a great uh, commercial grade type of contractor who understands your equipment uh, maybe has gone through training school at the facilities at the at the manufacturer um, really have someone that you really trust because you're going to need them at some point or another you know the best equipment in the world is still mechanical equipment and it's going to to be serviced at some point and and certainly preventive maintenance as well. Well, and you were talking about, you know, wanting to work for one of the big threes and right, like combustion engines and things. And, you know, I mean, I think about myself, I'm, I'm probably better than maybe a lot of my friends about maintaining, you know, a service schedule and getting my oil changed and getting at least eyes looked at, you know, on my car, on the engine to make sure everything's running okay. But, you know, the same is true for any machine, right? Any, including HVAC systems that the more you have eyes on it, the more you maintain it and service it, the better it's going to serve you in the long run. Absolutely. You know, this is the livelihood for a lot of the growers. Mm. So, you know, yeah. making sure that we're keeping ahead of any situations and, and how I would recommend you do that is certainly uh, do almost a recommissioning on a regular basis as much as twice a year. You know, have someone go check the temperatures and pressures again, not just change the filters, but let's look at how the system is operating, even spend the time to compare how it was operating last year at the same time hmm. so we can get ahead of any issues before they start to occur. Because not only are they expensive, but, you know, every time that uh, we, we take a unit offline for unexpectedly, right, that's costing some money, that's costing productivity, it's, uh, it's delaying us. So keeping up with, uh, with all these things are very important going through the details. It can be expensive, and that can be some of the differences between if we deep dive into integrated systems, we have DX equipment directly, and we have some chilled water systems. And, uh, you know, the DX systems, you may have literally, I've seen hundreds of individual refrigeration systems on a particular site. Could you imagine trying wow. to keep up with PM and uh, service with with a couple hundred units on a site? Um, that can That can be difficult, but it's just necessary. I mean, is this equipment specialty enough or custom enough that a a service technician uh, would need special training or or education to to service and and work on? Um, I mean, how 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 can growers find a service technician that's qualified to to service and work on these equipment? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, one of the things that I, I used to look at very closely is if you could find someone who's done a supermarket refrigeration background, for example, that's some of the most complex equipment that's out there. And they certainly have some uh, reheating. Some of them use hot gas or liquid uh, reheating in the applications. There's a remote condenser. These racks are, are a little bit complex and there's uh, systems out there on the on the floor that are that are complex as well in some aspects. Uh, look at their background. What's what are the typical work that they do? Certainly, you don't want someone who just does residential AC, um, and and that's their their foray. Uh, nothing to you know. But there's nothing to say that they they don't know what they're doing, but they might not have been exposed to as much. So go and interview and figure out what the past work that the contractor has been doing and so on. And, and do they have the idea of the complexity of, of some of these? 
as I mentioned, the hot gas bypass, for example, that's uh, that's often used in, in some of the supermarket industry. Definitely, as I mentioned, they call it reclaim, um, hot gas reclaim or hot gas reheat. Uh, that's used there as well. And then, yes, uh, finding someone who is, a, if the manufacturer has a certified uh, startup technician school or a certified training school, uh, sending them, you know, to that uh, particular school, you know, usually it's not much more than a few days a week, sometimes as much as two weeks. And, uh, you know, it, then they're the expert on that piece of equipment. So my recommendation is, you know, go look for people who've worked on complex things before, um, and then, you know, try to urge your uh, provider to, to go and do it. It can be tough. I know uh, some of the facilities are in remote locations and uh, yeah, you yeah. don't have a wide you know, pool of, of uh, contractors or service techs to pick from, but we have to do our best from that perspective. Yeah, I was actually, I'm glad you brought that up because um, definitely location has been a limitation for us on what equipment we have recommended or specified because they're in a remote location or, or somewhere where they don't have a lot of representation for different types of equipment or specialty equipment or the equipment that, you know, would be our first choice uh, to recommend. And so, you know, it kind of shortens our list of what we can recommend, but we also want to make sure, you know, we don't want to just say use this equipment because we think it's the best equipment, but then they have no way, you know, no, no one to work on it. Right. I mean, we want to, we want to pick equipment that's the best for that certain grower, that location, et cetera. Um, so even if it's not our number one choice, even if it was our number three choice, as long as there was someone there to help them through it, they're going to be in better shape than, you know, the, the, the top two choices, for example. Oh, I absolutely agree. And that's why some of these emerging technologies, we're going to hear more about liquid desiccants, even solid desiccants in some cases. But, you know, one of the obstacles that we have is, you know, who's seen this stuff, you know, before and, you know, are they going to be able to understand, you know, the corrosive nature of lithium bromide or something to that effect, right? So all of these, you know, nuances, we got to get trained up as an industry. If, if we find that we can scale these and well, reduce their size and, and cost and so on and so forth. So we'll be talking more about that, but you're absolutely right. You're spot on to say what's sustainable for this particular site. I, I think that's yeah. a, a great way to look at it. Yeah. You know, I want to talk to you about just <laughs> some of the talk of the town, if I may. Um, you know, there we've talked to a lot of people, both our clients and not our clients, um, who have been dealing with the frustration of, of failed compressors. Um, and, and I was kind of hoping you could speak to this a little bit. It's, it's just across the board, you know, it, it's not manufacturer specific. It's not location specific or grower specific. It just seems to be endemic to this industry right now. And, and I was just wondering if you could speak to that a little bit um, maybe what lessons have been learned or being learned about this, um, what growers and, you know, their maintenance team can do um, to uh, avoid uh, these challenges or, or um, stay them off a little bit longer. Yeah. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I think uh, as an industry, as, as manufacturers, we're always trying to take the data and look at the possibilities and, and where it is, whether that's, you know, something we could help uh, create more robust systems against uh, some of the un unusual circumstances or, or field conditions that are unexpected. That's uh, kind of the start of things, and, and that's continuously developing. One of the areas it really has to start with as well is, and, and I think you're doing a great job with it, uh, Nadia, thinking about what's sustainable and what's appropriate for a particular area. So we talked about an air cool package system. That's a package that has that integrated, you know, condenser that can reject heat outdoors. Um, you know, putting that, you know, in Southern California can be a great idea, but it might not be great to put that in a rooftop in Nova Scotia, right? And the reason is because of the, the cold, cold temperatures and its effect on the refrigeration system as a whole, what happens if you turn that unit off and it's negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit or, you know, uh, they're about there in uh, Celsius as well, right? 
um, that's, that has a different effect. And that's something that can have some more wear and it can have some more potential risk for some of the system components. So as nice as that package system was, uh, maybe that's an area where we want to think more about, it's a split system as it's called, right? Only the remote condenser, only the condenser and some fans are on that roof or even better yet on a grade level outside. So we can go look at them, shovel them out in the winter or whatever it may be, because again, we're running 24, seven, 365. So, it starts there too. We have to be careful about where, what type of equipment we're applying in, in what locations uh, from that perspective too. Um, and then we talk about the preventive maintenance, uh, you know, certainly getting ahead of the issues and, and even better than that, continuous commissioning, right? Yes, filter changes are very important, right? Because we, we're going to load those up at times uh, in, in the flower rooms, especially. But uh, going forward, can we, can we look at, is the system operating, get ahead of the issue? Uh, compressors, for example, I'll, I'll pick on squirrel compressors. They're okay with liquid refrigerant, a little bit of liquid refrigerant, but we can't compress liquid. It doesn't work. We break things when we try to compress liquid. So we have to look at and say, do we have a expansion valve problem? If that expansion valve is feeding too much liquid and it goes through and it comes out of the evaporator as liquid, and we can put some safeties in there. There's things like you know suction accumulators and that type of thing that's that's common. But if we put enough liquid in there, that's going to break a compressor. So getting ahead of that problem and saying, nope, we know our expansion device is responding appropriately. That is uh, absolutely critical to, to things as well. If we can cut that off before it becomes a problem, then we are in much better shape. Why, why would liquid be sent back to that compressor? So if that expansion device, usually uh, in these systems, uh, highly efficient systems have an expansion device that adapts. They're called either thermostatic expansion valves or electronic expansion valves. Uh, and they modulate to make sure that what comes out of the evaporator is gas. It's not any liquid, right? And we want to be able to flow as much liquid as possible. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to get into it. Superheat. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> you can cut this part out later if you'd like. But or they can just fast forward a few seconds. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but uh, what what comes out of that evaporator is superheated gas, and what that means is it, it's heated above its point where it would flash off to vapor in that line uh, by a certain amount. So if we say we have ten degrees of superheat or fifteen degrees of superheat, what that means is that the gas is 15 degrees warmer than it would be at saturation at the point it would start to flash off. And that's important because if it's too high, then we are not getting much phase change in that evaporator. It's not getting as cold as we would like it to be uh, because we're not flowing as much liquid through it and we're not doing as much phase change. Uh, but if it's too low, it means that it was close to, to uh, the saturation point. It was close to liquid. So we have to ride this uh, kind of fine line uh, to some degree. There, there's definitely a kind of a, a, a wider berth that we have there. But at the same time, uh, we don't want it to be liquid and we do want it to be gas, but we don't want it to be uh, gas uh, at a rate that it would be extremely high superheat. The expansion device, these adjustable devices, it's their job to keep it within a good, efficient and safe range for that evaporator. So there's sensors on the suction line, the piece coming out of the evaporator, and that expansion device is modulating to be able to maintain that superheat. If that's broken, that's a problem. If it's open too far, it's going to let too much liquid through. We're not going to be able to flash enough off early enough, and it's going to flow through it as liquid. So if we look at a compressor, we have to figure out what was the issue? Was there an electrical issue uh, that, that caused this? Was there a mechanical issue in the form of low superheat uh, liquid coming back to the compressor? Did liquid get back there because it migrated to the compressor? The liquid will migrate to cold areas. So I mentioned one of the areas where we have the, uh, the unit, uh, majority of the components outside 
uh, we got to be careful about that because if that sump of that compressor is very, very cold and another area of the system is at all warm, then we can migrate some liquid into the sump of the compressor when it's off. So those are the types of things that we need to be extremely careful about and uh, tackle. If we had a compressor issue, the first thing we should be asking ourselves is why. You know, it, yes, compressors do wear out, uh, but that shouldn't happen immediately. And there may be something else in that system that's causing the issue. Let's avoid the repeat issue by finding the root cause. I mean, is, is the dynamic nature of these grow rooms a part of the issue with how the expansion valve is responding? I mean, if you, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to understand, like, what is so special about indoor plant environments? And we, so we started the conversation with, you know, they're very dynamic. We have photo period, dark period. We have the transition period. We haven't even talked about that yet. Right. Where, where the equipment is trying to catch up with the load um, and vice versa. Um, is some of that that dynamic nature sort of pushing this equipment to its limit or are some of these components unable to respond quick enough to the change in what's happening in the environment that the expansion valve stays open because it you know it was in one state uh, a one steady state before the dynamic state you know created a new load that oh my god right like it needs to close like is that part of what's going on specifically with, with this application? I would say, you know, that's not too unusual for a system at some point to see some changes in loads, no matter what the application. I, I think one of the items that are in front of us with the indoor plant environments is that this dynamic load through time causes us to potentially size the equipment in a way where we may have more of an issue. If we oversize it tremendously, again, I, I don't care if it's got a variable speed compressor or you know, if it's got multiple stages, if we oversize it tremendously, then there's this possibility that we're doing some cycling of that compressor uh, and the whole refrigeration system at this part load. And that can provide a little bit more risk and, and it can be difficult to keep up. You know, I want to say a, a lot of this, uh, and I, I'm not saying that you're wrong by any stretch, Nadia, it's a challenging application, but we really rely on these compressors and that we put a lot of run hours on these compressors and there's a lot of systems out there. It really feels at times where, wow, we had another problem and, and so on. Again, I don't want to say it's not an issue, but it's, uh, it does get into this impact where we're seeing, oh, this one is down. And then next week, that one is down. And if we do have a hundred or so units, it can really feel that way quickly, but you're not wrong. It, you know, there can be some challenges here. I think they have to do a little bit with uh, how we've sized the equipment and its propensity to turn on and off, which is one of the, one of the areas that can certainly, uh, you know, manufacturers do their, their best and they, they know this happens. Uh, but it's an area that can add to some of the some of the issues and add to some of the, the challenges. Yeah, and you know, uh, engineers, I mean, we love safety factors, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, and you know, suddenly, you know, you have safety factor on top of safety factor on top of safety factor, and all of a sudden you're two times oversized what you needed. And I do think that, especially in the early days of this industry, um, where so few people knew how to size equipment, that there was probably more safety factor than was necessary or then were within the sort of limitations of this equipment to perform uh, sustainably and reliably, I guess. Um, so hopefully that's getting better. I mean, are you seeing it improve as the years go on as this industry? I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's mature by by any means, but it, we, we've definitely made big strides in the last 10 years, right? I mean, are, are you seeing, are you seeing Personally, or not personally, but as, as a company, better selections, better questions, better specifications from design engineers? I will say yes. Loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> Was that pause too long? <laughs> I, I would say yes. Uh, I, from my personal standpoint, it's moving along and it's moving along a little bit slowly, but at the same time, experience throughout the industry has given us great perspective on this. So 
some of the large growers uh, are really taking a scientific look at this. In fact, all, you know, many growers, I shouldn't say just large growers, many growers are looking at this scientifically, uh, trying to target what they need and trying their darn best to determine what their specific loads are. Um, if they have the bandwidth and the, the, the time, and this is a priority for them, uh, they are getting some knowledge and they're, they're sharing it with, with others, including manufacturers. Uh, manufacturers, we'll, we'll certainly talk about in a little bit, have tools now to uh, look at these applications in depth and uh, be able to uh, determine this and, and share with others. So, uh, you know, uh, you're on several committees with me, Nadia, and, and we're doing our best as an industry to share the knowledge and that goes to growers, it goes to manufacturers, consultants uh, throughout. So it's getting better. We have a, a long way to go. Yeah, agreed. You know, I mean, just to, to stick with the compressor for just one more minute, you know, something you said earlier, um, well, I, I kind of have brought a few things home. One is, you know, earlier you said, you know, that it was like sort of the uh, if, if indoor pool environments and data centers had a baby, right? Like this is, this is indoor plant environments. One way that I do think indoor plant environments are similar to a data center is that 24 seven operation, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we are really pushing this equipment hard all year long. And as growers have been, you know, traditionally scared of the outside air and not wanting to use ventilation, maybe to an advantage to help them with dehumidification and cooling in, in colder months. Um, and we certainly don't need a lot of heating, right? Because we have really well insulated walls and we have all the heat that we're generating in the rooms themselves. I mean, we're forcing these compressors to, to work hard, like you said, you know, one time of the year could be like LA and, and in the winter it could be like Nova Scotia. And they we're asking them to work in all of these environments throughout the year, um, you know, and maintain the same environment inside that those four walls and, and roof. Um, so that's really tough for them. I mean, if there was one or two pieces of advice to growers and to their service techs, on maintaining the the duration or the durability of their compressors? Like what are one or two things that they could go to every three months or every six months um, to look for and to tune, so to speak, um, mm -hmm. to, to keep them running as long as possible? Yeah, like I said, I think one of the things that comes into play is the cycling, whether that, again, is turning on and off one compressor in a set or the whole system for that matter. Uh, what we want to do is check on these occasionally, uh, log the data uh, you know that we have and, and look at it and make sure there will be compressor cycling, but make sure it's not unnecessary compressor cycling on and off, that we are not expecting that compressor to come on for a minute or two, turn off, then come on for a minute or two later. You know, it can be difficult when the loads are low so that, you know, we, we want to be able to maintain a very perfect condition. But if we've got a minimum turndown, like minimum capacity of that system that we don't expect too much, don't have it turn on or turn off too rapidly at that minimum load. So look at it, uh, understand what it's doing at those conditions. And there are some, usually some tools uh, on most manufacturers equipment to be able to minimize that type of cycling. Obviously take a look at that compressor superheat, look at the subcooling, make sure there's enough refrigerant in the system, uh, that type of thing. Uh, that's, that's something that I think you should be done, you know, once every three to six months and, and reviewing all the systems, as I mentioned. I would think those types of things and, and engage the manufacturer if you have questions, right? Get that service tech involved. They're the front line. They're the person who's going to see the equipment. They should know it just about as good as that manufacturer after a period of time. But if there are questions, engage that manufacturer and, and say, what can we do about this? Is there a tool that you have in the toolbox to, to be able to make this potentially better? And I think working together, you know, if, if we do find that there's a, a unit or a set of units out there that, that are causing some difficulty, you know, that, that certainly can be overcome. It takes a team though. You know, one thought that comes to my mind is with a car, with my car, right? Like the oil that I put in my car in the summer might be different than the oil I put in my car in the winter, um, a slightly different grade. I mean, 
Would that be true for a refrigerant? I mean, would you want a different charge in the summer than you would in the winter or, or do something slightly different? You had talked about, you know, recommissioning your system every six months or so. Is that me? Is that part of it too? Like kind of, I don't know, that liquid that's flowing through there? Yeah, not no, necessarily. We would like to avoid that, right? So in integrated systems, usually we've got a large liquid receiver and its job is to, uh, in the summertime, that's when the least amount of charge is required out in the system. So then it starts to store liquid refrigerant in this receiver. And then in the wintertime, mm-hmm. more is required out in the system. So that's where less is short, uh, is in that system. And good systems have that capability and, and shouldn't require that kind of uh, personal attention on a, on a seasonal basis. Uh, it, it certainly, uh, you know, you can take a look at it. And if your system is not designed, uh, you know, with that liquid receiver in it, then you're going to have more challenges and that can become an issue. Uh, if it's what we call a critically charged system, it doesn't have that receiver in it, then you're going to have to be extremely careful and you're still are going to have some issues around uh, seasonal pressures and temperatures and so on. So, yeah, yeah, I would think, you know, having a unit designed for the application is just so important. That gives you your best approach. If, you know, it's an air conditioner that has a reheat coil because they wanted some dehumidification in the summertime, that is not an indoor plant environment integrated HVAC system. That that's something else, and and you're probably going to run into some issues around those. Uh, but you know that uh, seasonal charge. Uh, hopefully, we've got that taken care okay, of. Okay, with the, the liquid receiver. Now I know yeah. what that's there for. Okay, excellent. <laughs> so at, by the time we're done, you're going to go ahead and design your own. Uh, right? I know. Well, that's what I'm getting <laughs> at here. So no, I'm kidding. That was the first half of our interview with Craig Berg of Desert Air. Join us next week to hear the rest of the conversation for his special episode of What Plants Crave from STEM with Dr. Nadia Samba. Thank you for growing with us.